Hey everyone, just Artie here with a quick note at the top of the show. The episode you're about to hear is our recent interview with Melissa Jira Grant on her New Republic piece, Republicans are already trying to pass as many anti-trans bills as possible in 2022. This was originally posted just for patrons, but we're unlocking this today because of the news out of Texas, which we plan to return to in more depth on Monday in the in the patron feed. But there have been a lot of great patron episodes recently, so today we're doing something a little bit special and making the unlocks kind of a double feature. So also unlocked today in the podcast feed is B's excellent interview with Dr. Stephen Thrasher on the Biden administration's COVID response. So if you're not a patron, uh, we hope you enjoy both of these. And if you do, consider becoming a patron at patreon.com slash deathpanelpod. For patrons, we'll see you on Monday. And that's all for me. We're going to lose if we aren't like confronting this directly. Like we can't just say like, oh, this bathroom thing. That's just like a culture war thing. That's just a distraction. Like Mm -hmm. we have to like directly call out what this is. Welcome to the Death Panel. Patrons, thank you so much for your support. We could not do any of this without you. If you'd like to help us out a little bit more, share the show with your friends, post about your favorite episodes, pre-order Health Communism, or request it at your local library, and follow us at deathpanel underscore. And if you're listening to this episode and you're not a patron, then that is because we've unlocked it. And if you want to become a patron to get access to all of our weekly bonus episodes like this one, become a patron at patreon.com slash deathpanelpod. Today, we are joined by writer, journalist, and documentary filmmaker Melissa Jira Grant. Melissa is also a staff writer at The New Republic and is recently back from book leave, but we've asked her here specifically to talk about her new piece called Republicans Are Already Trying to Pass As Many Anti-Trans Bills As Possible in 2022 that came out this past week. So, Melissa, thank you so much for coming on. Welcome to the Death Panel. Hey, you guys. Thanks. We're so glad to have you here today to talk about this piece that you just wrote, which offers a bit of a picture of what to expect this year from the ongoing campaign of anti-trans bills that are being proposed at the state level pretty much universally. And this is a trend that's been building over the last couple of years and something that we've talked about on the show. But as you point out in your article, Melissa, um, I'm going to just quote you here. The right has been remarkably consistent in recent years in its incremental state-by-state approach. Each year, the number of anti-trans measures multiplies from 79 proposed bills in 2020 to 147 in 2021, 13 of which became law. And as we talked about in the past with friend of the show, Jules Gil-Peterson, the vast majority of these bills either seek to prohibit gender-affirming care or to ultimately eliminate trans people from public life. So it's a much bigger picture than what it is often reduced to, which is simply a sort of quote unquote culture war problem. Also, I think for context now, I think activists have tracked something like 280 or more bills that either are planning to be advanced or have already (laughs) been advanced uh, for for this legislative session. I mean, obviously, it's a problem that is uh, 
exponentially increasing in the summer. You called it a viral issue. Melissa, to start us off, can you talk a little bit about this piece that you've written for the New Republic and what it's arguing? I mean, the, it's self-evident from the title, which is, you know, Republicans are already trying to pass over 200 of these. Um, and as we'll get into later, there are a lot of parallels here between what is happening in terms of parent-oriented advocacy or the sort of protect the children rhetoric between anti-trans bills and also the kind of people that are advocating for let it rip and rolling back the few remaining COVID protections we have in schools. But before we get to that part, Melissa, can you just talk about how this has been escalating in recent years to sort of contextualize this for someone who may not have been following it closely? Yeah, absolutely. It's super overwhelming. I mean, I'm sitting here with a list of what I think between myself, Freedom for All Americans and ACLU South Dakota is like where we stand now for how many states in which these bills have been introduced and just the anti-trans specific ones. So things like uh, the bathroom bills or the bans on trans girls participating in girls sports or the healthcare bans like you talked about, other laws that make it impossible to change your identity documents. So like your ID, your birth certificate. Um, and then there's even some that require schools to disclose to parents if kids come out mm -hmm. as being trans or non-binary. We're looking at somewhere between 21 states right now where they've been introduced. So some of those aren't going to move. Um, but this is sort of the strategy is just it's kind of like reminiscent of the anti-abortion strategy on the right too. just like let's throw tons of bills at tons of states. I think this might actually be more. Um, but it's escalating every year so that it kind of creates this exhaustion. I mean, I really yeah. do think it's yeah. that's an explicit or implicit part of the strategy, perhaps explicit in the halls of organizations like Heritage Foundation, sure. um, <laughs> who are a part of pushing this or Alliance Defending Freedom. But like, you know, the last piece that I did before I went out on book leave in August, I went to Texas um, at the end of their first legislative session. So people who are following voting rights stuff might remember that I think Texas had a total of four legislative sessions last year. Right. Um, and this year, mercifully, they're they're off, um, which is a whole other story for a state as big as Texas. Don't we have a state legislature meet every other year? We only come in, <laughs> we only come in to fuck shit up. Like, that's our yeah. only purpose. Like, when, when it comes to actually, like, doing work. Like a demolition like team. It is, it is absolutely wild. Like, this was also my first reporting trip after I got fully vaccinated. So I, like, arrive in Austin, where the state capitol is, and there's, like, National Guard tents surrounding the capitol, and, like, people checking my vaccine card and giving out these, like, purple bracelets. Like, you were, like, I don't know, going to go to a show or something. Um, <laughs> and then I get in, and, like, no one's wearing masks who actually works in the legislature. Um, and there's parents who've been there at that point. This is the end of May you know, for months, and they would continue to be there at least through October. And it was just this ritual where, like, kids who were in school, though many of them were not physically in school because of, of COVID, um, which in, in some small way actually meant that, like, more kids could actually come out to the state house and do activism. And then their parents, some of whom were, like, ducking into hallways to, like, get on Zoom chats to do their jobs, they just basically moved into the Capitol for months and, right. and would have to go to these hearings and, you know, be confronted by these anti-trans people who would say the most, frankly, abusive stuff to their kids about their bodies, about their parents, like accusing their parents of child abuse, mm. um, really bizarre conspiracy theory types. You know, there were people there who had links to January 6th. It, it was a shit show. Like, I, there's no other way to put it. And everyone was really, <laughs> really tired of having to do this. And this was like, not the first time they had to do this. So like South Dakota, just to jump 
to the present, like they passed the first anti-trans law to pass this year. Um, and it was the first one that had passed since this campaign sort of began in South Dakota, which started there a little earlier than other places. So 2014. Um, and activists in South Dakota had pushed back every bill until mm-hmm. this one. And and so it's, you know, it's no surprise that it's South Dakota with what we know about their governor, Kristi Noem. You know, she's sort of been campaigning nationally on this issue. But it's a really bad sign that a state that had managed to hold them back for all of those years um, has had one passed. And so now we're seeing states that have like rejected, you know, bathroom bills in the past, for example, that are moving and states that are pushing for even more aggressive legislation than we've seen before, like one that was introduced in Texas last year and now has been introduced in some other states as well, which would regard people who help kids seek gender affirming care as participating in child abuse, whether that's their parents or, you know, a trusted adult who like, you know, gives them information or like gives them transportation anything like that. Um, it's, we're already dealing with situations in some states where parents have been reported to child protective services just for affirming their kids, gender identity. Mm -hmm. Um, and so it's, it's an incredibly scary environment where like the people who are the front line of this, which are essentially trans and gender nonconforming kids and their supportive parents, there already aren't that many people who are going to be politically active in that group. It's getting harder and harder for a very small group of people to fight this back. And they are feeling really abandoned by the left and even by national LGBT groups. That's really interesting because I, I the question that immediately popped into my mind when I was reading about what's happened over the last few years is the the fact that, you know, you, you did have these bills stall out even in places where you thought they might have succeeded, like Noam vetoed a piece of legislation beforehand. But I think, mm-hmm. you know, what's pretty clear from your reporting is that the reason that you might see those things stall out is not necessarily, uh, and maybe you can confirm this, is like, it's not necessarily the like, okay, the a- activists like triumphed here uh, necessarily. And even if that's so, the the broader pattern is this persistence and sort of exhaustion. So I, I think what's what's really interesting for me and maybe one dimension of this that we haven't necessarily gotten into uh, before as much on on the, the the podcast is can you talk about what the kind of advocacy um, networks look like for trans people in these states? And like you're you're talking about the sort of the broader failure of of the left and even some LGBT activist groups, like exactly what is going wrong? I mean, part of it is obviously like exhaustion, but also mm-hmm. I think you've documented some sort of strategic missteps. And I wonder if you could talk about that. Yeah, I'll I'll use Texas as my example because, you know, Texas is maybe not necessarily known for this nationally, but has like a really robust community of parents of trans kids. There's also multiple clinics in the state and programs that are affirming of trans kids. So there's sort of like an infrastructure, at least on the health level, that I think has helped galvanize this like advocacy network as well. So you have parents who sort of come into activism through like helping each other sort of navigate these various health systems, whether it's like, you know, what are the tests that you have to take to get on hormones safely or like which therapists can we trust and things like that. Mm-hmm. So there's actually like a Slack group of parents in Texas who are having those conversations that then, you know, some of them, you know, move into sort of like formal positions in advocacy. Like there's, you know, a Texas based um, group called Equality Texas, which is sort of like 
a human rights campaign type chapter in Texas, you know, doing broad LGBTQ rights issues. Um, there's no trans people on, on staff and they are sort of like the front line, um, for fighting these bills in Texas in terms wow. of like an organization that has like an office and phone numbers, like most of the trans groups that I've encountered across the country, you know, that are local, you're talking about groups where like mostly it's volunteer led. There isn't a lot of budget. They might not even be a C3. They might be doing mostly like mutual aid work. I think Jules talked about this too, when she was on the show, you know, like there's a tremendous amount of leadership at like the real grassroots, but it's not necessarily reflected even in like the big LGBT rights organization in town. Right. So, and, and, you know, and I have to give it credit to the, the ED at Equality Texas, Ricardo Martinez, who told me over the summer, like, yeah, we know we have to be better on this. We know that. And like, I think it was 2015 when there was a, a campaign in Texas that sort of like was like a test case, I think, for what we saw going forward from the right. They wanted to roll back a human rights ordinance in Houston. Um, and this campaign, people have heard, if they've heard about it, they probably heard about it under the name Hero. So they were successful in targeting this human rights ordinance, a very broad human rights ordinance, not just, you know, protecting trans people's rights, but LGBT rights, racial justice. It was very broad. Um, but they seized on the bathroom issue to sort of make this a boogeyman. Um, and you had very prominent trans rights activists and bloggers like Monica Roberts, who wrote at the website TransGrio. She's since passed away. You know, she was saying, like, we're going to lose if we aren't, like, confronting this directly. Like, we can't just say, like, oh, this bathroom thing, that's just, like, a culture war thing. That's just a distraction. Like, mm -hmm. we have right. to, like, directly call out what this is. And we have to have trans people in leadership and we have to have them resourced. And, like... That still hasn't happened, even in Texas, where this was a fight, mm -hmm. right, from 2015 going up to 2021 when I was there most recently. So, yeah, the people who are, are holding the line are like, they maybe have never done policy advocacy before, and yet they're doing things like, you know, managing spreadsheets of dozens of legislators, coordinating office visits, getting their kids to come with them, also doing all this during COVID in a legislature where no one's taking COVID precautions seriously, um, having to quarantine then before they go back to school. Like it is, I can't think of like a worse environment for people to do this work than this moment during COVID. I think all kinds of activism has been blunted by that, but they were already not being very resourced and like feeling like this was like a totally anticipatable fight also. So that right. that's sort of the moment that like people are coming into this year. It's like every year it seems like we learn that we we don't have it together or we don't have the support to do this work. And yet we're going to show up anyway, because if we don't, like who will? Right. right. Well, and it's interesting because some of the things that you raise off of Phil's question make me think immediately of some of the stuff that you've been writing about over the last more than a year now, which is how, for example, I mean, you brought up the culture war framing, for example, I think that one of the ways that this has been able to so clearly proliferate is that the right has sort of like framed it as this matter of simple culture war, mm -hmm. as opposed to being, you know, this, this kind of eliminationist tendency, basically to try to, you know, essentially restrict trans people from public life, basically, by whatever means possible, uh, including especially legislative here. And I think, you know, one of the one of the big questions for, for me that I love to hear, like what you think about and why you think this is happening, maybe is how, for instance, it's so clear that on the right, there is this, for lack of a better term, like institutional support 
for Mm -hmm. anti-trans action, anti-trans legislation, not only from things like in a very literal institutional support way, things like the Heritage Foundation uh, supporting a number of other things, but including this, you know, funny, like the the promise to our children document or whatever, um, and a number of other things that sort of just like preach that uh, there's in addition to things like critical race theory and uh, I don't know, COVID masking or whatever, that there's an insidious you know, blanket of gender ideology or, or whatever <laughs> that is permeating our public schools and must be stopped or something like that. But so like not only things like that, but also things like you you point to this report by Media Matters that says, for example, that like in the run up to and after the South Dakota bill was passed just recently, there was like no coverage practically or no no meaningful amount of coverage really other than a couple of mentions on MSNBC of of the bill from liberal or democratic party aligned media sources and basically if you were going to hear about uh these things happening on like tv for example you're going to hear about it from tucker carlson right Right, people celebrating Um, it or generally from people on fox news and so i I just wonder what you i don't know if i exactly have a question here but i think it's i think it's interesting and kind of one of the things that i really wanted to get to in this conversation basically is just sort of what it means that essentially it's not merely that, you know, as you're mentioning, these people, these families are exhausted. They're having to fight this on their own. It's that institutionally, the Democratic Party, liberals, et cetera, are just leaving them to fight it on their own. Yeah, abandoning right? them. Yeah, they've conceded the fight. And and there's a lot of reasons for that. And, you know, I can name a lot of names and I'm probably going to get through some of them. But, you know, it's not an accident that the hero campaign in Houston comes in 2015. That's the same year that the Supreme Court rules on marriage equality. And I think there was a scramble on the right um, at the same time as there was this sort of like overly optimistic celebration within the Democratic Party. Well, we got marriage equality. So check gay rights all done. And to be honest, they were hearing that also from large mainstream organizations to a certain extent, right? right? Like human rights campaign groups Mm -hmm. who in the past had explicitly sold out trans people. In an effort Mm -hmm. to pass non-discrimination legislation um, and who not just trans people, but like lots of groups, like I'm thinking of groups like Queers for Economic Justice, who like financially didn't survive to this moment. But in that moment, we're saying things like, you know, if you really want to meaningfully make change in our lives, like tying, getting things like health insurance um, or being able to like, you know, be power of attorney for your partner or like whatever inheritance, all of those things. Like, why are we tying this stuff to like marriage? You know, there are meaningful things that we could be doing for people, whether that's universal health care, whether that's employment non-discrimination, like the real nuts and bolts of people's lives where marriage was sort of getting used as a way to like dole out that those benefits to a smaller group of people and a a group of people that didn't necessarily include trans people either. So you've got two things going on. You've got this sort of like abandonment of, I think, LGBT rights within the Democratic Party once we get to marriage Mm -hmm. equality. And then we've also had this institutionalized abandonment within the mainstream LGBT rights groups. There were many, many, many groups doing incredible work from like a trans-centered place at this time. Like I'm thinking of groups in New York, like Fierce. I'm thinking of groups in Texas, like the Trans Education Network um, or TENT. 
you know, the work was happening. It just was sort mm-hmm. of invisibilized under all of this, like, kind of optimism. You know, the folks I talked to at Tent were like, look, like, we don't just have to fight on trans bills. We also have to fight all the horrible anti-immigration stuff that was coming up in Texas, because that's right. our community, too. Like, we aren't just this one thing. And in a way, like, the right is, like, so much better at seeing this stuff as, like, you know, for lack of a better word, intersectional. Right. <laughs> like, yeah. They just totally you're so though. right though. Oh, they, and I'm not the first person to say that. I wish I could remember who said that first. Uh, but it is this like they see the interconnections in these issues in a way that um, the kind of mainstream of the Democratic Party and you know most of it, to be honest, is struggling to sort of articulate. And, and you see it even in the way that people are talking about the anti-CRT stuff, right? Like, is it a culture war or is that like indivisible from the attacks on voting rights? Mm-hmm. Right. Like we are in this moment where the right more than I've seen in my lifetime. I'm I turned 44 in January. I have the same birthday as Ruby Wade. So I'm like more than in my entire lifetime. I've seen the right mobilized on like multiple fronts mm-hmm. that they also view as interconnected. And I think that really started in that first summer of covid when we start to see people turning out at public meetings and engaging this har- in this harassment of public officials when it came to how COVID was going to be addressed in schools. And then you get that same group of parents now who are coming out and, and then pushing back on, on anything that resembles like even the most baseline acceptance of trans kids, like using their pronouns in school. Yeah. And I think that that interconnection between different parts of the right goes, it does go back quite a long way. And I mean, there is, some pretty good research that shows there's like a movement structure there that has there's porosity between the different single issues and they're not necessarily seeing themselves in competition. Whereas like in the Democratic Party, the associated groups are like all sort of fighting for their own, you know, like little sort of professional plaudits. And, uh, you know, they're, they're sort of more competitive with one another. I think the thing that's interesting to me, and I'm curious if you have any sense of this, is... Is, is what's happening not just on trans rights, but also in a variety of different, like I think the CRT legislation and things like SB8 in Texas, all of them have this common form, not just is it like a an attack on, you know, uh, um, like individual rights, but it's also like leveraging the state. All, all of these pieces of legislation have some way of giving individuals like private rights of action to... Yes. Mm-hmm. Like basically become it basically allows I've, I've used the term like the state of cranks like it basically allows <laughs> this whole think, yeah. like private social enforcement uh, of legislation. So there is this I think what's emerging now is this broader broader sort of thing. I think some people have said like called it like the vigilante state. Um, is there a recognition of that in kind of broader sort of like movement organizing like at at the state level or anything that you've seen or like essentially are people learning from, or the people that you're talking to, are they learning from in any meaningful way, the losses, the pretty serious losses they've experienced there or alternatively. One thing that occurred to me is that they might see some parts of this might see those losses as just like, okay, well now, now you go into litigation and like now it's really about what happens in the courts. But like, I'm just curious, is there any move, you know, sort of movement learning that you're seeing happening uh, when it comes to like the legislative losses? I mean, there's movement learning I wish was happening. <laughs> and then there's what I'm well, okay, yeah, you could talk about yeah. that too. Like what you could say, what is happening? Maybe like, what do you wish would be happening? Yeah, I mean, I'm just thinking of, of a moment at, at the state capitol in Texas this summer where 
was walking in the rotunda and they're like, why, why is this familiar to me? Like I've never been here before. And I realized that I had probably consumed enough of the live stream of the night of the filibuster in like 2013. I think that was Mm. (laughs) Um, that I could kind of like picture this place, like full of people and voices bouncing and echoing off the marble. And it was like basically empty. And I think some of that had to do with, with COVID. I think some of that had to do with the group of people that you could mass mobilize to defeat everything that was on the docket that day. So it wasn't just this anti-trans legislation. It was also like um, stuff requiring sports teams to play the national anthem and like stuff to protect conservatives on social media. Like, you know, anti-immigration stuff around IDs. There were so many things swirling. It was almost like, as people were telling me, everyone was in their own fight. Like when there used to be just one fight, they could all show up for each other. Mm -hmm. But like, you know, where was the mobilization in Texas for SB8? Like, I apologize if I missed something, but I had to like go back and say, well, what SB8, like this is a very new kind of anti-abortion law. It essentially creates a a ban as early as we've seen, a six-week ban, plus with this vigilante piece that you were mentioning. Um, And then I was like, well, what about the thing that brought people up by thousands for the filibuster? And that was a 20-week ban. And that was shocking to me and terrifying that like, a six-week ban couldn't mobilize people in that way. And this isn't a knock on activists. This is, I think, a testament to the right strategy of keeping everybody in a panic and -hmm. having multiple fronts to fight on at the same time, which is like starving people's ability to show up for each other who want to show up for each other. Like they, they can't. Right. And then the wishful list is like, you know, I kind of wish people were looking more to, movement thinkers like Dean Spade, for example, in this moment, you know, not just because like, I think it's evident from our courts right now that you cannot trust a rights claim to make Mm -hmm. it very far at all. um, If the courts are even functioning in any way that resembles the way that they once did, like, what are we fighting for outside the context of quote unquote rights? Because this leaving it to the courts, you know, leaving it to um, the ACLU to come in and save us and they're doing incredible work, but like, that is, it's not enough right now. And and my hope is that the kind of movement building work that would get more people out and mobilized to match the numbers that we can sometimes see on the right. Like, I agree, like the right has been working on this strategy for a long time. The thing that feels new to me is like the mobilization. Like it does look like there's just way more people out. Maybe the Tea Party moment was a similar one, but I think this time they're taking on way more issues simultaneously um, and keeping them sort of in the national conversation. It's it's something that like I have optimism that we could see happening in support of trans rights and support of racial justice. But like, as long as people are having to scramble and fight multiple fights, it's just draining them. And then to then fall back on the courts and say, well, when we lose, like that's, who's going to save us. Like, I don't think we can count on that. I don't know if we could ever count on that, but particularly right now, that also is a losing strategy. So yeah. Like what can we be doing to, help our communities thrive that isn't reliant on, you know, which circuit our case ends up in front of. Right. No, absolutely. And I appreciate you bringing up Dean's work because one of the things that I've been thinking about so much when it comes to just the way this strategy is, is working, right? Because you essentially have the defense of this, as we've been talking about, not being taken up by mainstream 
Democratic operatives not being taken up as like a banner issue of any sort of like national organization beyond like these sort of small legal teams that are fighting it being talked about in a lot of liberal media outlets. Right, right. It's like there is a gag order on like discussing (laughs) this even as an issue almost from a liberal perspective. Right. And that's just so completely asymmetrical right to what you the kind of organization you have on the right and you talk about in your piece the uh a quote from the alliance defending freedom they call what they have a a quote legal army that they've built and it's just kind of overwhelming just the sort of disproportionate asymmetry here because what you have is like a absolutely aggressive counterinsurgent strategy where they are trying to eliminate and remove trans people. They're trying to remove trans people's access to all sorts of things, whether it's at the level of like interfering with uh, education and curriculum, right? It's sort of an erasure of trans people from like the textbooks to the curriculum to being in the actual visible school building and erasure of like a recognition of gender identity too. And the idea is basically, you know, that a bunch of teenagers and a couple scrappy legal teams are plenty to fight a coordinated, you know, legal army, essentially, attacking them from this defensive position is absurd. And I find the fact that there is no urgency here when it comes to any of these sort of mainstream organizations, just obviously, like, really appalling. But you know, it's there's like the right picks targets that they find to be, you know, advantageous. Right. And there is absolutely zero perspective that incorporates solidarity from the sort of like broader civil rights agenda. And this is sort of how it's being like framed within discussions. Right. On the other side is that it's like this is a war for children and for parent autonomy. And it's against trans people. Can you talk a little bit about like what the right actually is working with on their end too? Yeah, I think the the right, the biggest gift that they have that they didn't have to build themselves is this <laughs> sort of reluctance on the on the part of liberals um, to to look at trans rights as an issue of importance. Um, right. If anything, yeah. and these are the names I was going to name earlier, you know, your Andrew Sublevins, your Glenn Greenwalds, your um, <laughs> sometimes even Michelle Goldberg. So this seems to be forgotten, you know, the sort of people who seemed ostensibly, you know, in the, the center left, though that's increasingly implausible language <laughs> to describe to Greenwald or Sullivan. But, pe- but people who sort of set themselves up as the like, I'm just raising questions crowd, right? Yeah. Um, I'm not a raging transphobe. I have some friends who are trans. I'm just raising questions. Like the the fact that that discourse is is allowed to dominate and that there isn't as swift a response from other people on the left saying that is so unacceptable, right? Like you could say like this is just a bunch of Substacks cranks, though you know many of them have worked for major mainstream media outlets, and they are certainly allowed to sort of like have more of a voice in this conversation than they would have if there was sort of like a steady drumbeat of coverage that came from a place of making the right the subject of the story. What is the right doing to trans children? You know, what are these these doctors who are trying to, um, you know, in these kind of sham organizations that are meant to sound like legitimate medical organizations, um, you know, what are they saying? They're sort of like fosters of this universe. You know, like the people who are like, what is can we focus on their behavior and not, is it okay that a kid is trans? Mm -hmm. They have won the conversation because I think the left is still not really 
focused on sort of who the institutional actors are, whether that's ADF or heritage, groups that like should be familiar to them, at least from broader issues around reproductive rights. But I mean, heritage, like, you know, the idea that there's this sort of like trans lobby who's monopolized the conversation, which like absolutely doesn't exist. I mean, yeah. this, the, the amount of money that go to trans rights within philanthropies in the U.S., you know, for every hundred dollars that a foundation spends in progressive philanthropy in the U.S., four cents goes to trans communities. So this idea of this like vast trans lobby um, that the just asking questions crowd gets to sort of position themselves <laughs> against is completely false. And it, it, it is reminiscent for me too, like the ways that that some of the COVID conversation is going. It's like, who, wait a minute, who are you talking about here? Who, who, what is closed? You know, like, what are you freaking out about? Like, I feel like you're just sort of generating content for yourself um, by, by creating this sort of like hysterical population on either side of you with you in the sort of like the middle to sort of mediate. And that, I, yeah, I mean, I've been watching this for years in the media. Like, you know, you know, in the UK media, if you follow it at all, that it is institutionally anti-trans, that like it is like a routine now the sunday papers every week in the uk have some sort of like piece coming out monstering trans people and while we don't see that in the us what we also don't see is sort of people pushing back on this just yeah. asking questions crowd and and thinking that that's just enough absolute silence yeah well it's also it occurs to me that one of the things that we don't see is elevated to you know the the level that you, you put it in your in your articles is I think the we've been talking about the left, but I I think the far more sort of institutionalized political network are people who would refer to themselves as liberals or having some sort yeah. of liberal ideas about maybe uh, social uh, equality and uh, and and maybe even individual rights. Right, going back to the sort of the foundations of like Amer- contemporary American liberalism in like the the fifties, like Americans for Democratic Action. That sort of like Cold <laughs> War li- that sort of like Cold yeah. War liberalism, sure. right? Yeah. Um, but even on in those terms, it's like here is the thing that is not being talked about, which is like the vision of the state that is already being implemented in these bills is one in which if you have a child who is trans, CPS can come in and begin snooping around your life. Child protective right? services. And you have yeah. to be ready yeah. for that. Like, and that, and so like the thing that's real, I mean, okay, you could say, okay, Democrats are failing on any number of fronts and like, that's a familiar thing. Right. But this is something where like, this is the vision of the state. It's already being implemented. And like, exactly how does that, like, why is that not a a priority? Right. Cause this isn't just about the num the, the literal, like number of people this affects, Like that's, that's not the way that you should gauge how how much of a priority it should be. It's like, how core are the rights to whatever your sort of generic liberal idea of, of how, uh, government should work and what it should ro- what its role should be in individuals' lives. I mean, that is. I mean, it's it's the stories that you tell, and maybe you could get into them. Like, are astounding. Like, you know, how are the parents who are currently having to confront this dealing with it? I mean, it's it's so it's so interesting to sort of throw it back on like, okay, classical liberalism or like this idea of like, you know, a, a liberal political tradition that enshrines the value of individual rights and individual liberty, which like, I don't think is real. Um, (laughs) I don't think it's real. I think that there's sort of a marketplace of rights, you know, and and if you can sort of like make your rights non-threatening, you know, in 2020, you know, the right not to be murdered by police was kind of hot for a minute. 
and the Democratic Party. Um, and where'd that go? You know, like I'm, I'm completely serious. Like, yeah, it's you're like, right. No, that that's a I, I like that phrase marketplace of rights that that does really absolutely. ring true. Yeah. And I'm, you know, thank you guys for pushing me to, to put that thought together, because it is true. Like that this is there's like the talk of like, oh, yes, like, you know, my body, my choice, which putting aside how that's getting, you know, appropriated by the the COVID denialist crowd, the the reality is like, you know, we haven't even fully reckoned with the the way that we think of individual rights around reproductive justice in a broad way. Like, you know, last week, Catherine Joyce at Salon reported that there's now seven different bills moving or that have moved um, that would require people seeking an abortion to call up a hotline, to be assigned an individual case number and to essentially be doing like crisis pregnancy counseling in order to to access abortion at all, which then has the consequence of creating essentially a database of people who've, who've tried to seek abortion. And when you compare that, when you put that alongside then these like vigilante laws that incentivize individuals to go out and say that somebody illegally had an abortion in order to get a bounty on them um, to go after the doctors, like I think like even in the marketplace of, of rights where like, you know, Planned Parenthood is sort of a mainstream actor, like looking at it in the way that you're framing it around like what kind of state do we want that like the dots haven't been connected there yet. I mean, and I, I fear that actually the kind of state that that some liberals want is a state that is intimately involved in regulating gender and sexuality mm-hmm. that does dole out health care, including gender affirming health care based on worthiness or means testing or something or some combination of the two. I think it's this sort of broad universalist approach that many trans activists are coming with doesn't necessarily fit with the realities of what the Democratic Party is is willing to offer. Right. Um, And I think this is a huge part of the problem with obviously there are many problems with the entire idea of the deservingness framework for mm -hmm. rights, for lack of a better term here. But among them is, of course, if your entire I mean, you mentioned at the at the very early in this conversation, we talked about the marriage equality fight, right, which so much of that was like predicated in the first place on, well, we'll fight here because this we can think of as like a deservingness framework because, you know, we're, we're talking about like reinforcing a mostly normative institution, but adding people who like just identify differently or whatever from how that institution has traditionally been upheld like when, when you're marshalling something through a deservingness framework, it will always redound to something like, okay, we'll get this right, but it's means tested. Okay, we'll get uh, this right, but it's only for people who can kind of, kind of present themselves in the most normative way possible as close as close to really whatever the preferences of the state are at that point, because, you know, we're apparently not willing to fight affirmatively for frankly, the existence of these people. And and when it's children, I mean, that's the other thing that I feel like kind of throws a wrench in that, like in a way that could be useful for trans rights, right? To be like, well, like it's one thing if we're talking about adults, but like these are kids, we have to protect them. And the right is using that language too. Oh, no, 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 we're not talking about adults. Adults can do what they want, but like, but it's kids, you know, we have to protect the children. And I think that that's like where in a way the liberal the tendency towards deservingness or worthiness or means testing, doling out rights in a preferential basis. Like it actually is like way more obvious when you're talking about children. Like I I'm kind of glad that we haven't arrived at a moment where we have the democratic party creating a framework for what, you know, what should be acceptable 
in terms of, of trans healthcare. Like <laughs> yeah, they're definitely not there yet. There's one, uh-huh. there's one that's like sort of it's, I mean, it's there, you know, if you're, if you're in prison, trust me, there's a, there's a framework um, if you want access to hormones or surgery. Um, but in terms of like, like they're, they don't have the range. Like I remember this isn't in either of these stories, but like, I remember going to um, the ar- the oral arguments of the Supreme court in the case that became known as, as Bostock. It was three different, cases conserving concerning gay and trans um, employment discrimination and I was sitting there like I am so curious if these justices even have the language to talk about the difference between sexual orientation and gender identity and the overlap (laughs) and you know like are these words that are even familiar to them Um, and like at some point during the proceedings, there was a pat joke. I'm not even fucking kidding. Oh, you know, go to the OAs and listen yeah, to it. I, yeah, I and, it, unfortunately, yeah, it came from one of the attorneys arguing for one of the gay plaintiffs. What? It was so absurd. And and I just, because they were doing one of those, like, fucking, just pulling out of the ether, like, one of these hypotheticals of, like, well, what if there was somebody where you couldn't tell what gender they were? Then how this situation would <laughs> oh, apply. Oh, my God. Like, that's literally like yeah but like that's this is how the courts approach these issues and i feel like this has been sort of the theme of the work that i've been doing over the last few years is just like there is so much more intelligence political bravery creativity like just a different vision of the world that we live in from groups who are fighting to protect the rights of of trans people than you will ever see reflected in a court let alone the supreme court um, and, and it, it makes me just really want to pull entirely out of that, the legal system to fight this fight. And I think like that might even be part of the reason that it was stepped up is I think we were getting to a moment where we were getting to that sense of a proactive vision. What, what should the world look like for trans kids? And now the same people who would be out there building that world are having to fight this stuff. Mm-hmm. If it wasn't intentional, it, it's, it's working in sort of turning people away from that vision. Well, yeah. I mean, I mean, I think. Obviously, this is this is an intentional move. Uh, Jules Gill Peterson has talked about this as the United States actually trying to assert a cis identity that did not actually exist before. This is an attempt to sort of legislate the the U.S. into a kind of a historical frame and approach to gender that becomes eugenic and exclusionary. You know, seeking to remove the reproductive pathways for trans people to become themselves. There is an incredible amount of violence and omission. And the fact of the matter is, is that a lot of these fights are being framed as um, two different groups of parents that are arguing both to save the children. Right. And it kind of keeps it in this this arena that becomes like a personal choice. Right. Like, I mean, people say all the time, like you can't parent other people's kids or whatever. You can't you know, you can't make choices for other people about how they're going to raise their children, children are seen as these sort of possessive objects, right? right? And so you have also this additional layer of, I think, people feeling like, oh, it's not appropriate to interfere in this battle, you know? And I wonder if you could sort of talk about the sort of like clashing save the children dynamic a little bit more. Yeah, I mean, and I wanted to mention too, um, one of you asked earlier about like how this is also affecting, you know, the parents who are like having to parent in the midst of this, like, you know, one of the things that I was really like lucky to hear from some of the parents I was spending time with is how they've changed over the course of 
of their kid's life. You know, like I talked to one mom who was like, when my son first came out, I was saying, you know, absolutely not. We'll never have surgery. And then two or three years later, she's saying like, yeah, actually that kind of makes sense. Like before you go off to college, I could see why you would want to have top surgery. I really support even doing that. That seems really important. Like, let's do that while you're still living at home with me and I can participate in your aftercare. Like, let's make sure that you show up to school um, as your full self. Like, people can change. People can change really quickly. And what I'm seeing in that sort of like two groups of parents framing is just like one, like just complete ignorance of that, you know, like trans kids, parents also have to go through a process of education and community building and political education um, Mm -hmm. around this that, you know, I don't necessarily think that sort of the anti-trans ideologues are representative of even people who are like, "Mm, I'm not so sure. Right. So like, let's like have Mm -hmm. this huge sort of like middle group of people who are like, I have no exposure. I'm not so sure if my kid came out of strength, like maybe I would tell them they couldn't be like, you have that power as a parent. Um, You know, it's, it's not, it's so much more complicated than that. Just like, if you want to talk to actual people who are going through this, like it it reminds me also a lot of abortion where like, you know, many of the people who are, are speaking out, quote unquote, like in defense of the children, Um, are people who have no skin in the game themselves, right? So we have, last week, I was watching this testimony from one of the Arizona, I think it was the state health committee, they were hearing testimony on one of the anti-trans healthcare bans. And, you know, tons and tons of of trans teenagers, gender gender non-conforming teenagers, and some of their parents, and also some people who were parents, but their kids weren't there, because they were older, talking about you know, their own personal experience, because that's also sort of been constructed as like the currency by which you will win, right? I'm going to tell you my story, and then you're going to empathize with me. Um, And then on the other side, you have people sort of reading other people's testimony that essentially is like an angry blog post um, that (laughs) is also personal testimony. um, But like in in a way that like you can't argue with that person isn't even there. so then it becomes like, okay, well, which, which group is now telling the more compelling testimony? That's how we're going to decide who wins here. And, and the standards are really different. You know, if there's a legislator who is broadly supportive of the anti-trans bills, you know, they will let the anti-trans narrative wander into the territory of conspiracy theories even and just sort of be like, well, these are important questions to raise. It, it, <laughs> it's, it's very honestly crazy making to watch and listen to this this testimony but it's pretty clear that this is sort of the strategy at least for the parents who are trying to support their kids as it is really rooted in in personal storytelling which can educate some people but also i think is really oppressive you know can you Mm -hmm. imagine what it is to have to keep showing up and telling those stories over and over and for kids having to keep showing up and telling those stories over and over um and i think i was in an article at the 19th um Carl Charles, who's an attorney who does a lot of work on trans rights, he was quoted as saying, you know, this might be a sea change in strategy that we're seeing after South Dakota. The strategy in South Dakota and other places was, well, if legislators just met a trans kid, how could they support this? <laughs> right. right. right? And, and I think that many people could tell you the weaknesses of that strategy. And if that is the lesson that people are taking away from this moment, then like... I think it's a right one. You know, I don't think that that's what sunk things in South Dakota, but I think broadly that was going to be a problem because it puts so much pressure on people who already have targets on themselves to show up and sort of like sell their, their rights. You know, it's, it's amazing. For example, that you've been able to, in your reporting, talk to so many people who are 
you know, many cases like driving long distances to go and make sure that they can then sit for like, uh, what I think of the Texas example, you had one that was like 17 hours or something sitting in the courthouse and just waiting. And, you know, that's Mm -hmm. that, you know, that's asking a lot of people to be able to not only to be able to do that, but also you have to have the confluence of a trans child with a parent who is willing and supportive to do that, which I think, which is pretty clear is not necessarily something that, you know, a lot of kids who otherwise could testify, for example, in those situations would have. Mm-hmm. Right. And so I, I remember that that article in the 19th news that you referenced, I remember I, I read that too. And the frustrating thing about the idea, like, oh, if they could just meet a trans kid, this legislator, you know, might change their mind is that in this particular example or in one particular example um, that they referenced in that article, the last time that there was a bill up, a similar bill up in South Dakota didn't make it through. And in this particular instance, one person, like one representative had switched their vote after basically like the one trans child activist had like gone off to college in Iowa and left his basically district. and left yeah. the district of the representative. Yeah. Right. So it's like the person has met this activist but they you know are no longer there they're no longer there to like give pressure because they should well one because they shouldn't fucking have to be right way to rob children of a childhood yeah i don't i think the thing that's so frustrating you know i felt this at the supreme court i mean i felt this on anything that i've seen argued at the supreme court and you see this in the state legislatures is that the terrain in which you can fight is like so narrow you know like you can't just say uh, you know, oral argument at the Supreme Court. Hey, guys, the only reason we're here is because ADF is trying to attack trans rights. That's why <laughs> right. we're here, you know. Um, and you, you and you can't say, though, I mean, people do. I mean, the other beautiful sort of thing about in Texas and S- South Dakota is people do come out who don't who aren't trans, who don't have trans kids. There are like lots of adult adult trans folks who come out and give all different kinds of testimony. Like one of my favorite people that I met in Texas is a, a reverend named Remington Johnson. Um, and she's a, a trans woman who has a kid of her own. And we spent a bunch of time together just sort of like talking through like how it even is like you present in one of these spaces. Like what's your, mm-hmm. like, you know, she told me, and this is in my piece about the Texas bills um, last summer, she's very keenly aware of the fact that for the legislators who are pushing this stuff, she's sort of the boogeyman that they envision, a tall, Mm -hmm. athletic trans woman. And she'll talk a lot about like doing youth sports too and how like, you know, nobody really seemed to care about the injuries that were so common, (laughs) but now they're all of a sudden caring about, you know, youth and sports when it comes to trans kids. Yeah, but not about head injuries. Right. Yeah, I think she was like, I think she did track. I'm not totally sure. Anyway, she still like works out and and is just like, you know, when I show up and present, like I'm keenly aware of that. And so like, I also want, when I go there, I'm not even necessarily going there to change the minds of these people, though I wish I could, but I want trans kids to see me and, and to see me out in community and to see me as somebody with support and someone who can support them that like, like this stuff is operating like multiple levels simultaneously. Like as much as, Mm -hmm. you know, I wish that people would speak out like people who don't have like direct skin in the game, you know? And I, I mean, I don't know if I do or I don't, I'm, I'm a cisgender journalist who covers trans rights, who's keenly aware of how few trans journalists there are who get to cover this stuff or anything. Um, And I think that that's another huge issue here is like sort of like who gets to tell the story and what's seen as important and, you know, that's, 
I think one of the reasons I'm so focused on sort of pointing to the political architecture behind this, this isn't like an organic interest in the processes by which trans kids transition socially, medically, et cetera. This isn't where this is coming from. And Libby Scarron, one of the ACLU folks in South Dakota put it very clearly. She's like, literally nothing has changed on the ground. What has mm -hmm. changed is the political environment. That's what this is about. And I do think that that is a very appropriate place for, you know, whether you sort of identify as one of those like mainstream liberals or more on the left with a broader sort of maybe health justice or economic justice frame that you can bring to this. Like, those are all the connections that that need to be drawn out because I think I do want to believe that if, if this were understood as an issue interconnected with access to healthcare, um, criminalization, that it would be seen very differently and not just sort of a like debate about do trans people exist, which is sort of, I think tacitly what, what liberals have let it be. Or should they, you know, cause it ultimately comes down to this sort of like, cis society passing judgment on whether or not they feel comfortable allowing trans people. And it it ultimately, I mean, it's sickening to have to um, tell your like personal story in order to try and gain access to like the bare minimum health care that you need. And it's something that we we demand of people so often in the United States. I mean, yeah. I think that you know, part of what we're also dealing with structurally back to like the framing of that Phil brought in earlier of sort of this is an issue with like your vision of what the state is for mm -hmm. and what the state should do. Um, you know, the, the kinds of ways that we uh, weigh testimony, right? Like you cannot go into a court and state the obvious, but what we demand instead is that children come and like make personal testimony to try and emotionally appeal to legislators who are then supposed to pass judgment down on them as to whether or not they're going to endorse their exist existence. It's, it reminds me of the way that we treat people on SSI, where they send the, the government will send someone to make sure that you are still disabled year after year after year after year. It's a kind of entitlement to someone's inner life and to their... Um, privacy too because it's it's almost like if you're not going to present as normative and be as normative as you can be then the idea that i think a lot of people have of government is that like the government and, and society is sort of entitled to anything that it really needs from you and any kind of supervision necessary because there's this kind of idea of like the the malingerer or the person who is like the predatory sort of uh, trans trender is someone who's doing this in order for like nefarious purposes. And like, you know, we never turn around and say like, oh, someone's trying to file an LLC. Like, might this be nefarious? But obviously there are way more times that someone files an LLC for nefarious reasons than there is someone pretending to be disabled. You know what I mean? Like yeah. the kinds of, of, of entitlement to supervision and the lack of entitlement to privacy is so uneven too. And it's absolutely disgusting that we just expect that, you know, what, what people oh, the state is emotional testimony to justify their right to exist. It's absolutely awful. The state has basically already said, like, your body is of public interest, but we also absolutely. are going to completely abandon any responsibility we have to you at the same time. Absolutely. And I sort of wonder if that should force us to rethink the sort of the, the general orientation of, of sort of activism around these issues, which is that, like, I think a lot of the sort of basic assumptions 
about what the state, what, what the sort of boundaries of, of, of state action are, uh, the lengths the state won't go to, to sort of surveil you. I mean, I just think in, in popular consciousness as well, it's, it's, you know, there are certain things that the state won't violate. Well, now it should be very clear if it wasn't, if it wasn't before, because that, that was always a fiction, but like, if it wasn't before, it should now be very clear that, yeah, no, no, this is exactly what, um, they can do. And by the way, they're going to enlist the help of your, you know, uh, crank friends and neighbors, uh, to do it. Right. And so I just wonder how you think that should reorient our thought about not, not just like what advocating to stop this legislation from, going into place w- would look like, but also, you know, h- how we should think about what happens once it gets into place, right? It's not just a question of like, I'll see you in court, because clearly they've made that uh, very difficult. And as you said before, litigation is not necessarily uh, any sort of savior. I'm just curious what what you think we can take away from that. Yeah, that's huge. I mean, it, for some reason, it took me back to, I think, the very first time I heard this discourse amongst liberals that we have to be really careful about who gets access to hormone therapy in particular um, because it's just too easy to access. And we, we really need to like think about, and like, I was just like mind blown. Like, do you not know a single human being who's had to access hormone therapy? (laughs) Do you not know any, like consistently, consistently, this has been an issue of access where people are turned away, they have to qualify their needs. They have to produce all kinds of documentation. They have to conform to certain ideals of gender um, presentation. And it's this idea that like, this is something that's being offered to too many people and too fast, I think is sort of what took us down this road that for me anyway, that was when I noticed like, Oh, we've left reality entirely. (laughs) Like this argument is, is about, this is people's discomfort. Um, culture war entrepreneurialism, like literally just needing a beat, mm-hmm. right. you know, like um, continually raising that question is a, a source of content for some people. I think that like, we kind of have to fight this on two fronts. Like the one that is calling that out and just saying like, you know, this is not in the sense of like, mm, I'm here to fact check you with what the, you know, board of endocrinology says, <laughs> because like that also doesn't work with many of these doesn't help, people. Yeah. Yeah, um, right. But more from a place of like, I think the reason you're raising this issue is not because of any real barriers the trans people face. Right. This right. is coming from some other place. And like, what is that? And even better if that's sort of raised in an institutional way. I mean, I think like, I don't even know if ADF necessarily has like a huge um, commitment per se to rolling back trans people's rights individuals, right? They are more committed in sort of denying any kind of state support to people that they see as unworthy. And now trans people are just in that category of unworthy. Does that make sense? Like it's not yeah. about, yeah. And, and so like, and you know, similarly, like the people who are, are pushing these like book bans and the anti-CRT stuff, it is significant overlaps with the people pushing charter schools, right? Like there's a sort of like state abandonment that is being pushed here across the board. I mean, not to like be like, yay, the state, I think I'm probably more an anarchist than anything, but like I, it's more just this level of like, you had no interest in this group of people until recently. How Mm -hmm. fascinating. Where's this interest coming from all of a sudden? What is this about? Like what power are you trying to hold on to? And I, I think that's where the fight sort of has to move at the same time. And groups who have been, you know, doing community work in trans communities, like more on sort of the mutual aid, legal services, health services side are continually sort of doing both, right? Of like negotiating people through a system 
that is mm-hmm. incredibly difficult to navigate. Um, you know, getting people access to housing, getting people identity documents, getting people to healthcare that's affirming. And then at the same time, having to call out this like whole fucked up power structure that's the reason for right. that. I mean, it's an incredible tool for political education, honestly, when people experience those barriers and start to understand the context in which they're working. And they understand that so much better than people who've never had to go through negotiating those those, those barriers to just living. Absolutely. And I mean, it's I think it's no coincidence that you see in so many of these elections where um, you've got local parents running for school board or to challenge like school board seats that really a lot of times their campaigns are three pronged. It is anti CRT saying that there is like, you know, quote unquote, reverse racism going on in our schools. (laughs) It is. They say uh, issues with sex education, by which they mean they are teaching children sometimes about gender identities. Sometimes they say radical gender ideology. Is or radical yeah. gender. And of course, to roll, you know, they're anti-mask and anti-vaccine as well. And it's all framed as this sort of campaign for liberty and against the state encroaching on like their parental rights. The fact of the matter is, is that the anti-trans stuff is also being fueled by the anti-maskers and the anti-vaxxers and the parent coordination that's happening on that end, too. A lot of it's the same people. And it's a lot of the same people. Exactly. Yeah. And I think ultimately, you know, what we're seeing in terms of um, the state abandonment of vulnerable and medically vulnerable people in terms of a COVID response, too, you know, you really have this sort of reflection of if you just invisibilize, ignore, and sort of reduce the urgency of any sort of action or solidarity, or, you know, if you try and increase the um, sort of pressure and discourage solidarity publicly, it's absolutely such an uphill battle to even work against this stuff, right? Because it's, you know, these people, they can get people out for COVID shit. You can get 50 parents to go scream at four school board members every single day, you know, that they meet for six months screaming about masks and anti-trans stuff and CRT and whatever, you know, but it's like to expect children and other parents to have to like counter that at so many levels. And then the adults that are also working in solidarity with them, it's it, there is so much more work that goes into pushing back on this stuff, whether it's like COVID or anything else, then there isn't making up the bullshit that you have to counter in the first place. Right. You know, they can get up there and say fucking whatever. And it it gets the same air and it sort of gets the same stage as people pushing back against it. Yeah. The conspiracy theory communities sort of around COVID and also sort of at the fringes, the increasingly not so fringy parts of the anti-trans world. Um, there's like some very disturbing overlaps there around like big pharma and vaccines and government takeovers of our bodies and some really bizarre, of course, ultimately anti-Semitic stuff like I started noticing that over the last year or so. Other people have been paying much more attention to it for longer than that. And now you're starting to see come out in these like reports on like threats of extremism, like anti-trans ideology being named as sort of a gateway into this. Like, I feel like it is it is a radicalizing thing also in the way that COVID was radicalizing for some of these parents. Like, and it's so it's so hard. It's not like bringing like a knife to a gunfight, but it's sort of like we're showing up with our smart lawyers. You're showing up with 70 people who have nothing else to do except scream at school board members. I'd like to speak to your manager mm-hmm. every week. And and I my 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 secret hope is that there could be a similar mobilization 
on the other side, you know, Mm -hmm. but you know, if you're actually scared of getting COVID, why are you going to go to a school board meeting with all these people? Exactly. (laughs) So they have a structural advantage there as well. But like, I like, this is a fight that like is not going to be won in back rooms. This is not a fight that's going to be won in sort of getting each individual Republican on your side. I think it has to sort of be brought into the realm of like, what is our responsibility to one another? Mm -hmm. Like this is, this is, is much more about a vision of the world. Like the right is not wrong in that. It's just the, the, there isn't a, an alternative vision that's being pushed with the same force. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's why I push so much the, there really needs to be a very affirmative counter message because I don't know. I mean, if they, if they want to, pretend that there's uh you know radical indoctrinating gender ideology abounding let's fucking give it to them (laughs) (laughs) we kind of had this conversation around the crt moment like last summer it felt like there were sort of two strains of response to crts in our schools and like one was like actually like that's just something that people learn in law school it's like a graduate sort of field of study and kim crenshaw and derek bell and blah 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 and like that's nice but like even you had Kim Crenshaw last summer going around saying like, don't, it's not about that. Like, don't like backpedal if, as if CRT is some like completely controversial thing that shouldn't be part of education. Right. You right. know, like, and I think that that's, that we're in a sort of similar place um, when it comes to the trans fights happening in the context of, of schools. Like, I mean, I don't know, public school is like where I was radicalized i guess around around queer rights i came out as bisexual in high school i had an infrastructure of like gay straight alliances to support that like that was in the mid 90s um like school makes sense to me that that's where this fight is happening um and the right is just better at mobilizing around school right now right and i think also it's like it's always a compelling argument to say that you're on the side of decency you know fighting the great war against the deviants everyone's always yeah the decent (laughs) right anyway and for the children. And, and for, for the, the children, children. of right. course. Yes. Yeah. yeah. I, I guess one thing that I would say before we wrap up is also because we, you know, have a lot more listeners now than we did when what I'm about to mention was first posted. I would highly recommend um, people go back and listen to our interview with Jules Gil Peterson on this exact topic. Also, yes. specifically the episode, um, A Political History of Trans Children, which that conversation we tr- we try to really specifically have the affirm like make an affirmative yeah. argument. I think that's super important. I mean, my my perspective on it, like I end up sort of feeling like like I when I was hanging out with these moms in in Texas and and having to realize like that we were the same age. So my whole sense of like, oh, you guys are so supportive and cool. It's like, oh, if I had kids right now, I would yeah, be in right. your position. I would have come from the generation that I came through to this moment. So maybe you know that's part of it too is there's a shifting in norms, um, that there are more affirming parents out there. Um, but I do come at it too, with a sense of like being like a queer kid who's like, God, like, I can't imagine having this many adults around me who are supportive. That would have been really, really different. Um, but on the same token, I'm glad that I wasn't a culture war when I was a child and I can't, you know, it's, so it's, there are these moments where like, there's so much outside pressure on you to sort of like affirm the right to your own existence. You're sort of robbed the ability to even define your own existence. And I, that's the thing I think I'm most want to try to find ways to protect right now. It's like nobody, whether they're like 10 years old, 40 years old, like who is kind of coming to their own sense of truth around their gender, like should have to contend with this at all. 
And like, I'm angry that I even have to contend with it. Like I would much be, I would much rather be putting my efforts into thinking about like, how do we expand access? You know, how do we decriminalize? How do we ensure that like, instead of building like prison cells and wings that are supportive for trans women, let's get trans women out of prison. Let's get everybody out of prison. You know what I'm saying? Like, I don't, this, this fight is, is meant to wear us down. And I think as much as you might feel worn down and not want to wade into it for that reason, like the only way through it is to have that, that positive vision. Like, otherwise I think it's just too crushing. Like I kind of, I guess that's my way of saying like, I understand why people might not want to wade into this. And yet um, I think that there's a moral imperative on the left right now to, to get it together around trans rights. Well said. Absolutely. Absolutely. And also, you know, if you were wading into something all alone, you'd want the solidarity too. So yeah. we all owe it to each other to have each other's backs. I mean, I think, feel like at a very basic level, there's a lot of refusal to do that. Can I shout out one more person? I'm so sorry. Oh, <laughs> yeah, realized. of course. Go for um, it. No, I, we mentioned the 19th and Kate Sevison, who's doing incredible reporting there. Um, like institutionally, the 19th as a news site feels really unusual and the like, degree to which they are staying on these issues. And I wish there was more of that. Um, and also I have to shout out journalists like Caitlin Burns, who's been covering this stuff for much longer than I have. Um, and particularly her coverage at Vox sort of like breaking down these, like how these right wing myths sort of get laundered through the legislation, I think is really important as much as as Jules has also shaped my thinking. I think Caitlin's really like opened the terrain for this to be a kind of political journalism. Yeah, absolutely. And if people want to follow you, they can find you on Twitter at Melissa Jira. And you also are working on a book right now, which I mentioned at the top. Um, do you want to tell people about that real quick at all? Sure. The The book is called A Woman is Against the Law. And it's looking at some of these same issues, like the limits of kind of rights and the legal system more broadly um, to deliver liberation for, for women and gender justice at the same time as we have a criminal legal system that is one of the most significant dangers to, to women. So how do we reckon with those things? And I'll be working on that book for another year, probably. So I don't know, whenever it's done, I'll let you guys know. Yeah, cool. I can't wait to read it. Yeah. It only makes it better to wait longer. You know what I mean? It's, it's book time. I kind of like it because you do I get like to it. sort of sit with stuff for a while and mull things over. And I know parts of this conversation are going to inform it too so thank you guys for having me oh thank you so much for for coming coming. on really appreciate it and um listeners thank you so much for supporting the show we could not do any of this without you if you'd like to help us out a little bit more share the show with your friends post about your favorite episodes pre-order health communism and request it at your local library or follow us at death panel underscore melissa thank you again we hope to have you back soon everyone else we will see you later in the week in the main feed and as always Medicare for all now. Solidarity forever. Stay alive another week.